Okay, uh, Revelation 3, the curse of compromise, or uh, excuse me, complacency. The curse of complacency. The seventh and final church that's addressed here in Revelation 2 and 3. The curse of complacency. You don't have any blanks to fill in tonight, so uh, don't go to sleep on me. If you go to sleep on me, I'm going to call on you, okay? <laughs> to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, uh, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, as I mentioned, today's message brings this section of the book of Revelation to a close. Uh, the messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, these messages cover that part of Revelation chapter 1 that is described there as the things that are. The things that are. From chapter 4 onward, uh, John begins writing about things that shall be and concentrates on future events from his standpoint of view. Now, as we have repeatedly seen, these letters show us what is right and wrong in the church. And so they reveal things that the church has to repent of and cling to. Uh, so you could say these letters give us the state of the church uh, at this time. You know, uh, every year the president gives a State of the Union address. Well, these letters, you could say, are the State of the Church address. And tonight, of course, we'll learn from the example of Laodicea. And what we'll see here is that a true church must be wholehearted in its devotion. There's no place for complacency in God's kingdom. Now, the letter we look at tonight is perhaps the, hard, the hardest hitting of all of them. Uh, there's no way to soften the message. And I suppose we wouldn't even want to. Uh, we just take it at face value. It's a hard-hitting message. You know, sometimes that's what the Word of God does. It takes us to the woodshed, doesn't it? And we need to simply take the punishment and learn from it. 
you'll notice that there is nothing good to say about the church at Laodicea. Nothing. Uh, the spirit of the letter is one of stern judgment. And yet at the same time, you'll notice there's great love in it. And why do I say that, that there's great love in it? And the Lord loves He chastens. And the Lord loves He chastens. And and what's the desired end of the chastening? That they would repent and, and come back to Him while there's still time. Uh, now, again, this letter certainly points out to us the sin of apathy. God hates that in His church. It's a dreadful thing to have a knowledge of the truth and not to really care one way or the other about it. Somebody has said today's society will die because it doesn't want to be bothered. Uh, the great sin of this age maybe is that we just don't care, right? There's an episode in Seinfeld, uh, uh, a dialogue that takes place between Elaine and her boyfriend in a particular episode, and Elaine asked, do you believe in God? Yes, her boyfriend responded. Elaine asked, well, is it a problem that I don't and that I'm not religious? The boyfriend says, no, not for me. She says, how's that that it doesn't matter? He says, well, I'm not the one going to hell. <laughs> That's pretty much the sin of the church at Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea. So what? I'm okay, or I feel like I'm okay. So if I feel like I'm okay, if that's how I see myself, that I think I'm okay spiritually, I don't really care about you or care about anything else. Why do I really need to care about the Lord's commands, anything further? You know, hey, we're okay, so what? That's kind of their attitude. Again, following this, this same outline, we have every week, uh, I've told you about the church first. It's felt that Archippus was the pastor of this church. Where else does Archippus show up? Do you know? No, no. Colossians. Very good, Kathy. Yes, Colossians. Uh, Paul addresses Archippus in Colossians chapter 4. Does anybody remember what the Apostle Paul has to say to Archippus? You need to finish the ministry that God has given to you. It's not complete. And you kind of need to mind your ministry, he says to Archippus, and get with it. So if this is the same Archippus, maybe he's apathetic and complacent himself as a pastor. And as so often is the case, the church has taken on his personality. This is a good reason for you to pray for your pastor and staff, right? We need your prayers. That we would be of the example that would be a good model for you. Archippus has grown lukewarm and his church has grown lukewarm. Now, Laodicea was a rich town. Uh, Charlotte is known for what? Money. Money. Banking, exactly. Well, guess what? Laodicea was known as a banking town. 
Uh, in fact, on several occasions, the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero had cashed huge <coughs> checks, Roman Empire checks, in Laodicea. They were so wealthy as a city when an earthquake had destroyed the city in AD 60, not too many years before this letter. They had so many resources at Laodicea, Rome offered to help them rebuild their city, and they declined the invitation. They had all the wealth and resources they needed to rebuild their own city. Now, in addition to being a major banking center of Asia Minor, they also had a prosperous wool industry. They were known for a high-quality black wool. But that's not all. They also had a medical industry at Laodicea. Would anybody guess what they were known for in the medical industry? A special eye salve. And so whether it was banking and commerce or health care or industry, Laodicea seemed to have it all. And so they were pretty well satisfied with who they were and what they had. They were comfortable. Life was good at Laodicea. They had a buzzing economy. I mean, think back to America, what, about 2019, 2018, 2019? Remember the buzzing economy we had? Everybody's comfortable and prices were good and everybody had plenty of resources and all. That's kind of how Laodicea was. But I, I want you to notice before he gets into specific instructions to the church, notice how he addresses them and as I told you in the first message, every one of the identifications of the Lord, when he identifies himself to each of the seven churches, there'll be something in that identification that he said of himself back in chapter 1, the way the Lord was described in chapter 1. And in each one of the letters, there'll be some element of chapter 1 that's picked up and, and is given in the introduction to each of the seven letters, respectively. He's described here as the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. He's got, Christ is God's Amen. He is the final and complete word from God. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, In times past, God spoke in various ways through dreams and prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. If you reject Jesus, there is no hope. There is no further word coming from God. There is no other deal, some better deal coming along. He's God's best. And he's God's final word. He's the faithful and true witness. He cannot lie. He will be faithful with what he tells you. If he makes a promise, you can count on it. If he threatens judgment, you can expect it. The church at Laodicea has not been faithful, but guess what? Jesus has been faithful and true. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 2.13. Where Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't it nice to know we serve a God who is faithful? He's faithful. 
He's also described here as the, as the beginning of the creation of God or the ruler of God's creation. This particular church saw its sufficiency and its own power and wealth. And uh, this would be a reminder to them that their trust was misplaced. Wealth and power and all things in the world can quickly pass away. Only Jesus is worth our faith and trust. He's our true security because before creation was, He was. And after creation, as we know it comes to an end, He will be. He is eternal. Well, let's move on and look secondly at the condemnation. Verse 15, he says, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. They're lukewarm. A couple of Sunday mornings ago, I mentioned three spiritual conditions that are possible. You can be cold to God. You can be lost and hard to the things of God. This is the unspiritual man, the natural man. The natural man who does not even perceive the things of the Lord because they're foolishness to him. His signal is not even tuned to the Lord's signal. And so the unspiritual man, he just gets up every day, goes about his business, and the things of God don't even register on his radar. He's cold to God. You can be hot or fervent. You can be growing in your relationship to Christ. You can be plugged into what God's doing in the world. This is the spiritual man. You judge the world and life by the Word of God. The Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and transforming your life, conforming you more and more to the image of Christ. <clears throat> What's the third condition? You can be carnal. You can be lukewarm. Uh, those who have manifested some interest in the things of God, maybe at some point in the past, they may even uh, see themselves as professing believers, but their life certainly raises some questions. They may have been touched by the gospel, but it's not really clear whether it's changed them in any way. They're kind of like the soil that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the soils, where the seed falls on that third grouping of soil begins to grow, but the weeds and thorns choke it out and it doesn't bear fruit. And Jesus said that it's the cares and the riches of this world that become just too tempting. In other words, here's a person that may identify with Christ, but there's little to no fruit really showing that there is identification with Christ. And you know, a lot of times throughout church history, nobody's been harder to reach than, than that particular person with the gospel. In fact, sometimes it was easier uh, to reach the publicans and prostitutes with the gospel than with those who were just kind of lukewarm, right? The Laodiceans were a half-hearted bunch. It's, it's almost as though they couldn't decide if they wanted to be a part of the world or a part of God's kingdom. They weren't fighting Jesus, but neither were they following Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them at Laodicea, it's time that you make up your mind. Either you're going to follow me or you're not. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? I wonder if Jesus could be saying to somebody tonight, make up your mind. Where do you stand? When it comes to Christ, when it comes to the gospel, where do you stand? Would he ask you that? 
I know James Merritt used to be Joyce's uh, pastor, and he was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Years ago, he, he uh, wrote about some statistics that he had gained through surveys, and he reported in that, he said, today, many church members, not a few, many, simply cannot be found by any congregation that they identify with. He wrote, 20% indicate that they never, ever pray. 30% that they never attend church. 40% never give to any cause. Now today, that, that one's up to about 75%, I think, that never give to any cause. 50% never go to Sunday school. 70% never give to missions, nor are they involved in missions in any way. 80% never go to midweek services anywhere. 90% never have family worship. And 95% of professing Christians say that they have never even once even attempted to share their faith in Christ with anybody. When was that? This, this was year, probably 20 years ago he wrote this. Yeah? Some disturbing statistics, right? But aren't you glad that Jesus' love towards us wasn't sort of there and sort of not there? What did he say from the cross? It is finished. It is finished. It, it's clear in the Bible, Jesus is asking us to go all the way in our relationship with him. In, in Mark chapter 8, he, he says there, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Some people need to make up their minds, right? Are they following Christ or not? At Laodicea, this seems to be the problem. And, and notice what Jesus says about it. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. In other words, it's like he's saying, you make me sick. I'm nauseated to think of, of you. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. You know, it can be easy to get complacent in life. We get complacent with our time, with our exercise, with our relationship, with our diets. You know, some things don't really matter if we get that complacent over, right? There's a joke about a, a man, uh, after 60 years of marriage, a couple who had counted every penny and watched their diets, they died together in an airplane crash. And when they reached the pearly gates, St. Peter escorted them to a beautiful mansion, said, welcome to heaven, this is your home now. The, the old man asked how much it would cost. Why, nothing, Peter said. Remember, this is your reward in heaven. The old man looked out the window and saw a championship golf course. What, what are the green fees? Peter said, sir, this is heaven. There are no green fees. 
And next they were shown this lavish buffet and Peter quickly said, don't even ask about a price, it's all free. The man looked at his wife and said, well, where's the fat-free stuff? She's going to want to know about that. Peter said, you don't have to worry about fat and cholesterol or heart disease here. You can eat anything you want and always be perfectly healthy and nobody ever gets sick or dies here. The old man looked and glared at his wife and said, huh, you and your brand muffins, we could have been here a decade ago. <laughs> Well, it may or may not be a big deal to be complacent about diet or exercise. Uh, but it is a big deal if we're complacent about our spiritual life. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 6 and 7, he said, Timothy, you need to fan into flames the spiritual gift that is in you. You need to give some attention to the spiritual gift that is in you. And you need to stoke it up. You need to fan it into flames. Maybe that's you tonight. Well, verse 17, the condemnation continues. Not only are they lukewarm, but they're prideful. Uh, he says, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched and pitiful, uh, poor, blind, and naked. What's their problem? They were self-sufficient. They didn't think they needed God for anything. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that really don't think they have any kind of negative condition before God. Hey, I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. Doesn't matter that the Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and no one is righteous. No, not even one. They say, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't really need spiritual things. Why do, I, why do I need to be saved? That's, that's how some people look at their lives. You know, Jesus even told a parable about uh, somebody religious, the Pharisee and publican. The Pharisee... You know, they were both at the temple praying, the Pharisee and the publican. And the Pharisee, looking over at the publican, said, God, I, I'm glad that I'm not like this guy over here. God, I do this, and I do this, and I do that, I do that, I do this. I'm nothing like that guy over there. And then the publican wouldn't even look his eyes upward to God, beat on his breast, and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, not just a sinner, I'm the sinner. And Jesus said, he's the one that went home justified that day. He saw his need. He saw his condition and how desperately he needed God. At Laodicea, they didn't, they didn't really understand their condition. They saw themselves one way. What a shock it must have been uh, for them to hear that Jesus saw them as being poor. Not only that, but in their pride, they didn't see that they were naked. Don't you love the, the, the story about the emperor and Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Emperor Has No Clothes? Remember that? These two swindlers come to town. They promised that they could weave the most beautiful garments the emperor had ever seen that he could wear. 
And they said if anybody could see the clo- uh, could not see the clothes, it was only because they were not worthy of their office. And so they had these looms brought in, and they pretended to be weaving beautiful garments. People would come and see what they were weaving, and no one dared to say, I don't see anything. Because again, the swindlers had convinced them if they said they didn't see anything, they weren't worthy, they were unfit. And so they pretend to put these garments on the king. They have people stand before him who pretend to even be holding the train of his garments. Here the emperor is naked and nobody will admit it. And they parade him through the streets and finally a little child said, He's naked! He has no clothes! (laughs) Well, that's how the Laodiceans were. They thought they were rich. And they were, they were strutting around in their famous wool garments from their wool industry in that town. And Jesus said, actually, you're naked. Not only are you poor and naked, but you're also blind. What did I say their medical industry was? Special staff. And yet he says, you can't see. You can't see, you're blind. They were blinded by the world and and by their assumption of what they thought their condition was. They were enamored with everything around them, everything they had. And the whole time, they were were blind and poor and naked. Again, like Jesus said, what will it profit a man uh, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Again, I like what James Merritt says here. He gives a snapshot of what kind of what he imagines the church to be like at, at Laodicea. He says it was a church that was lukewarm about its service. The Sunday school teachers studied their lessons on Saturday night, spent only about 30 minutes on their lesson, then went into their Sunday school class the next day 15 minutes late. They didn't care. They walked in just like everybody else with a yawn on their faces and bags under their eyes. In fact, The church was lucky to have Sunday school teachers to begin with because people had more important things to do than study the Bible or teach the Bible. Uh, The teachers that they did have didn't know who was, had no idea uh, who was saved or who they thought they were saved or who they thought was lost. Quite frankly, they didn't really care either way. Everybody would uh, come to church on Sunday night for an ice cream social, but on Tuesday night visitation, nobody could be found anywhere. They were lukewarm about the scriptures. There was no real hunger to study the Word of God. They didn't enjoy preaching. They endured it, especially if it was brief. Then they were lukewarm about their sacrifice. They would sing sweet hour of prayer, but they never showed up for a prayer meeting. They would sing, oh, how I love Jesus. And then when the offering plate was passed, they didn't even love Jesus 10 cents out of every dollar. Then they were lukewarm about their soul winning. It's not that they were against people being saved. As a matter of fact, it was all right with them and people did get saved. They just weren't excited about it one way or the other. They weren't going to be involved in it one way or the other. They weren't really concerned about whether their neighbors were lost or went to church or or not. 
They didn't care if people were walking the aisles or if the baptismal waters were being stirred. As a matter of fact, if they had to choose between getting out of church at noon or people getting saved, they'd much rather get out at noon. That's a, that's a pretty hard-hitting description. That, that probably describes pretty well the church at Laodicea. And again, Jesus looked at this church and what did He say? I, I'm just ready to shoot you out of my mouth. You make me sick to my stomach. Imagine Jesus saying that about you. What's the counsel? Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Again, as I said in the introduction, it, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus loved them. It's a hard-hitting letter. The, the criticism is very blunt. But he didn't just write them off. He wanted a relationship with them. He wanted them to see themselves as God sees them. You know, it's going to do us no good whatsoever to have an image of ourselves if God's view of us would be different, right? It's only God's view of us that really matters. Amen. Some people only care about the image they have of themselves. What's the image God has of you? Jesus counsels them to obtain the spiritual reality that is behind their physical reality in that city. So he, he counsels them to obtain true riches, true wealth. They were wealthy in Laodicea. Again, a banking center. But he cautions them to have true wealth. You know, Jesus talked about laying up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust uh, doesn't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Because the wealth we see in the world isn't true wealth. God offers us true wealth. And you know what? You can't put a dollar value on what God offers. And you know what? God, what God offers isn't going to fade away either. Everything in the world is going to fade away. Have you followed the stock market lately? Up and down, mostly down. If you're in it, you've lost a lot of money. The European Union's in trouble financially. I read an article last week about the trucking industry in America. And they're talking, the trucking industry, Glenn can probably speak to this, he was in the trucking industry. Uh, experts in the trucking industry talking about what, what trouble they're in in the trucking industry, not only with drivers, but with a lack of freight to move for the drivers they have. They were saying, one expert was talking about the trouble they're in. Some of the predictions for 2024 aren't that great. The world seems to be going belly up financially. The wealth of the world fades away, but the wealth the Lord offers is lasting. You know, in Isaiah 5, God told Israel that since they prized money and possessions more than Him, He was going to smite them in the area of their money and possessions. Think about that. 
Maybe that's the problem in America too. We have valued money and possessions and God's smiting that where our trust has been. That's what he did with Israel. And what's so dangerous is that worldly riches can keep you from true, true riches. And so again, the Laodiceans needed to obtain things from the Lord that money in their town couldn't buy. And then he said you need to obtain white garments. What's white garments a symbol of in the Scripture? God's righteousness. Remember in the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22 about the wedding banquet and the guy who came in and he did not have on the right wedding garment? What were they to do with that guy? Throw him out. Lock him out. Lock the door. Again, garments... White garments, the righteousness of God. They need that at Laodicea because they're naked. Their lives have been clothed with the wrong things. And if they continue down that path, they're going to stand before God one day at the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to be totally ashamed and totally naked. But what Jesus is offering them is real clothes. God's righteousness that comes through Christ, faith in Him. You stand before God in your own righteousness one day, and He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you stand there before God clothed in Christ's righteousness, you say, welcome home, my child. Then they needed to obtain true sight. <clears throat> and if they only will, Jesus is promising He'll give them sight into things that really matter in life. They can have their spiritual eyes opened. Do your spiritual eyes need to be open tonight to what really matters? So, again, what I want you to see in each one of these cases, whether it's wealth, clothing, clothing, or eyesight, they were satisfied with the cheap substitute of the world instead of what God was offering in that area. They were settling for a substitute. Being satisfied with the world's riches instead of the riches that God offers. Going after what the world sees and values versus what Jesus wants you to see. You know, the Bible talks about some who are ever seeing but never perceiving. What a horrible condition to be ever seeing, never perceiving. Maybe you've been walking about in life seeing with 2020 vision, but at the same time, you don't see. You're blind to the things of God. But again, what I love about this, verse 19, Jesus still loved them. He said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Why does Jesus discipline people? Because He loves them. Hebrews chapter 12 if you are without God's discipline, he says it's because you're an illegitimate child. You're not a child. If you're God's child, he can take you to the woodshed about what's not right in your life, right? And so that's what Christ is doing. And so even his discipline of them, his judgment of them, is an expression of his love. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, the worst thing God could ever do is just leave you alone to go your own way. He loves those he, 
He disciplines those he loves. He didn't just write them off at Laodicea. But they need to repent. He's not, he's not after them trying to strike deals with them or negotiate some other arrangement. He wants them to repent. And then Jesus says, look, I'm right at the door. I'm standing there knocking. You know what that's a symbol of? I'm ready to do business with you, he's telling them. Again, I'm not writing you off. I'm not forgetting about you. I've called on you to repent. I've called you to come back to me and get right what's wrong in your life. I stand here knocking. I'm ready to do business with you. I'm ready for you to open the door and, and invite me to do business with you. He's a, he's a perfect gentleman. <clears throat> and he says, I'll come in and I'll fellowship with you. I'll come in and eat with that person. And they with me. He'll dine with us. That was used of supper. Connie says I ought to call it dinner. But I'm, I'm a southerner. I call it supper. No. This, the words here were used of supper, which was viewed at that time to be the best meal of the day. And so what Jesus is saying, I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking, I'm ready to do business with you, and if you'll open the door and let me in, I, I'm going to offer you the best. Fellowship with me, communion with me. I'm going to dine with you. You're going to get the best. <coughs> Again, why is, he do, why is he doing this for them? Because he loves them. He loves them. He wants them to respond. In 1985, a group of Southern Baptists left Eastside Baptist in Marietta, Georgia to go to Worcester, Massachusetts on a mission trip. <coughs> you ever been to Worcester, Massachusetts? I have. We went on a mission trip in our youth group at our home church. Anyway, 1985, one godly prayer warrior out of that group kept wondering why in the world a name kept coming to her mind. Every time she'd read her Bible and pray, and pray about the trip, she had no idea why a name, John Nesbitt, kept coming into her mind. She kept wondering, I don't know a John Ness. Why does that name keep coming? Finally, she opened her Bible to the flyleaf. She said, I'm, I'm going to write the name John Nesbitt down in the flyleaf of my Bible. Before they even left on the mission trip, they got to Worcester, began working. One day, a car kept circling the block and circling the block, circling the block. A man got out, walked over to them and said, my name's Jack. I'm lost. Can you tell me how to get to such and such place? This lady, who'd been praying about the trip, nicknamed Bo, said, uh, said Sir, we're not from here. I'm sorry. We, we can't help you. He said, Where are you from? She said, We're from Eastside Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. He said, Oh, you must be Christians. My wife's a Christian, but I'm not. She's telling me all the time that she's been praying for me. Then he said, by the way, you say your name's Bo? That's an unusual name for a lady, isn't it? She said, oh, it's not my real name. It's a nickname. He said, well, I understand nicknames. 
My name's not Jack either, it's John. In fact, it's John Nesbitt, and I'm from England. She about, she about fainted. She said, sir, you say you're not a Christian. Can I show you something? He said, sure. She got her Bible. She said, weeks ago, before we ever left Marietta, Georgia, I kept praying about this trip. She said, what's, what's the name you read there in the flyleaf of my Bible? I finally wrote down. He said, that's my name, John Nesbitt. She said, God kept laying your name on my heart. And I'd never even met you. You say you're from England? We're from Georgia? And here we bumped into one another in Worcester, Massachusetts. So, sir, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. He said, okay, ma'am, I'm ready to listen. <laughs> and she led him to faith in Christ. That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus knocks. He knocks. Why does he knock and offer? Because he wants to come in and fellowship with you and save you. And if you're lukewarm, you know what? He wants you to wake up to that. He wants you to wake up. We dare not toy around and play with the things of God. Eternities are at stake. Maybe tonight you're on the fence between the world and God. You want to have church as a part of your life and church as a part of your kids' lives, but you know, you really don't want to go overboard with this Jesus stuff. You want, to, you want a dose of religion, but you, you don't want it to inconvenience your life or your plans. Would you recognize tonight you're somewhere between hot and cold and Jesus calls on you to repent? I want you to see that nothing the world has to offer can satisfy you, ultimately. You can have everything in the world and yet be poor. You know, Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He saw his sufficiency in Christ. There is no substitute that you place ahead of Christ that will ever bring satisfaction in your life. Maybe you need to pray tonight that you would see yourself the way God sees you. God, how do you look at my life? How do you view me? Would you help me to see myself the way you see me? And then help me to make whatever changes I need to make. I could even be talking to somebody in here tonight that the Lord's still saying to you for the first time, I'm standing there at the door knocking. I'm ready to do business with you. Aren't you ready to open the door and let me come in? Aren't you ready? Are you ready? Will you open the door? Any comments? Okay, well, the door 
<laughs> at, at least that's how the painter, oh, who was the guy who painted the famous painting? Uh, what's his name? That's the way he painted it, anyway. Jesus standing at the door knocking, and there's no door handle on the outside. It's only on the inside. It's really true. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that the, I don't know, it just hit me is that we talk about the door and knocking, but what did it say at the end? Here's my voice. Mm -hmm. It's about the John 10, my sheep. Well, hear my voice. Well, hear my voice. That's right. And the second, here's me knocking, you hear my voice. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. My son, Jeff, if the church first meeting years and I think he's gotten a wake-up call with this cancer. Yeah. Okay. If that doesn't do it, I don't know what will. Yeah. God can use some pretty unpleasant things to wake us up, can't I? Yeah. I pray the same about Mike. I mean, he's said spiritual things to me that he's never said before. Mm. He said, um, don't worry about me. But when he's going to get the cat, he's don't worry about me. God's uh, not to with me. He's got things for me to do. So I just pray that this will turn him around. I mean, he's not a bad person. He just he's one of those little fun ones. Yeah. 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 So that's where our hearts are. That you know, he could have died of a heart attack. Sure. And he's had a lot of time. He's, it happened Saturday, and he's going to get, you know, the second time he's going, hard catheterization Friday. Yeah. So I'm going to quote that scripture to him tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I text him, I'm just going to, this was our scripture tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look at the way each one of these letters has closed. Every one of them. How, how does Jesus close? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's speaking. Are we listening? God's speaking. Are we listening? Richard? Um, I was thinking of a man. Uh, I don't know too much how he got started, but uh, I was thinking of Jack Horson. I don't know how, how he got started in his ministry, but I do know that he had... Uh, he never lost sight of his vision, and uh, he preached for thousands of people at Yankee Stadium, and he, he had a burden for the people of New York City, and he, you know, God kept using them and using them and using them, and uh, he started a camp up in New York, and he had an island just for teenagers, and um, my friend was a counselor at that island, and also, uh, person who went to the uh, uh, Word of Life from our church, he started, he was so impressed what was going on, he started a similar thing, Lone Tree Bible Camp in New Mexico. But uh, the thing is, he had, what was the secret of his ministry? And uh, if you know, uh, the empty stadium, it says a house, a roof, a roof built. Now, if you go to Word of Life then, it's uh, when you go through the doors of the big sign, the house that Jack built, and then he has a big X on the word Jack, and it says God. And so he, 
he, and they always stress that was a success of his ministry. And they have, uh, they have um, missionaries all over the world and, and passion plays and uh, Bible camps. And so one day I, I saw him, uh, we were there for a fall festival, a fall uh, retreat. And I saw him, he was alone, and I asked him, he, was, he had to be in his 80s. And I said, so what are your plans? I, I'm thinking uh, rocking chair, I'm thinking uh, the lake that he's on, School Lake, the world record Great Northern Pike was caught there. Well, what was his plan? So he looked at me and he said, his eyes lit up and he said, we're, we're going to Russia. Russia's opened up. And I'm thinking, wow, this fellow never stopped, but he never lost sight of his vision. Uh, he was never, uh, and that was success, you know. May his tribe increase. Amen. Okay, in two weeks, because remember we don't meet, meet next week. Two weeks, we're going to jump into a book we've never looked at before. Hosea. You think you've ever been given a tough assignment in life? You ain't seen nothing yet. What was God's assignment for Hosea? To go and marry a prostitute. Because his life, his family life, was going to end up being an analogy, an illustration of Israel's relationship with God. So we'll start that in two weeks.